Welcome to The Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. Thanks again for tuning into the scientific method. And again, hopefully that again is accurate in this sense. Hopefully you've heard our first three episodes now. Yeah. Um, if you haven't, stop sure listening. You go to iTunes. <laughs> stop listening and go back and listen to the other ones first. You don't have to do that. <laughs> um, they're not in chronological order, but they are interesting and I think they're worth your time. So go to iTunes, look up the scientific method. And make sure that you listen to those. Uh, we've had some great guests on some great topics, and today is no exception. In today's conversation, we spoke on a major crisis currently facing our country, the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. So for this conversation, because it has so many layers and so many challenges to even really discuss it uh, effectively, we brought on two guests where we typically have one. So today we had both Dr. Albert Brady on. He's the PNWU Associate Professor of Internal Medicine. And we had on Dr. Edward Bilski, who currently serves as the Provost and Chief Academic Officer at Pacific Northwest University. Uh, Through our conversation, we discussed the challenges associated with not only the current addiction facing our country, but the problems associated with prescribing opioids through the healthcare system, the challenges that have been in place for years in that process, what has gone wrong, uh, the reasoning for prescribing those opioids, and what can be done to better prescribe them in the future. Um, our conversation, again, as they typically do, went in a lot of different directions, and it it ran into a lot of questions that simply don't have simple answers. Um, we could have gone on for hours and hours on this topic, but we capped it with what I felt was a pretty hopeful stance by Dr. Bilski on uh, the country and the nation moving forward with this epidemic. But the reason that we had this conversation is because the epidemic is currently at a level that is completely unsustainable and it's worse than it's ever been before and all indications are showing that it's getting worse every single year. We frame this conversation with uh, an interim report that was released by the Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis. So this was a task force that was implemented by the president and it was a major part of his campaign to try to find a solution to this problem that's facing so many people in our country and touches so many lives Um, In this interim report, we have these statistics that are right on the front page. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to go and read it because this, again, was uh, a hopeful approach to finally finding some answers to what's going on and figuring out how we can stop all these deaths. Um, Some of the statistics, if you have not read the report yet, uh, I'm looking at it currently. So right here it says, according to the Centers for Disease Control, and I'll warn you, these are pretty shocking. uh, The most recent data estimates that 142 Americans die every day from a drug overdose. 
It also says that drug overdoses now kill more people than gun homicides and car crashes combined. And between 1999 and 2015, more than 560,000 people in this country have died due to drug overdoses. Again, these numbers are kind of hard to wrap your head around. And the idea of 142 people being lost every day to this problem really forces us to have a conversation about this problem. 142 a day is, you don't even have to say how shocking and outrageous it is. And if there's any way to get that number down, then those steps need to be taken no matter what they are. Um, opinions don't really matter here. And different sides of the coin may argue that there are solutions that are better than others, but those discussions have to be had because there has to be a solution to this. There are far too many people being lost and there are far too many people getting addicted to these opioids every single day and those numbers of people lost seem to be growing rapidly every day and every year. And if we don't do something to stop it, then we are facing a serious crisis in our country. And it really is a crisis that everybody is facing. It's not just affecting a certain population or a certain demographic. Um, it's something that is stretching across pretty much every demographic, I think, um, within the United States. And it's it's something that everybody can be touched by in some way or some shape or form. And um, so I think that's why it, what makes it so important. Not saying that if it only affected one group of people, it wouldn't be as important. But I think it's easy for people to kind of um, turn a blind eye to stuff that's not directly related to them. So I just want to challenge <laughs> that uh, this is something that could be directly related to you and directly related to somebody that you know and someone you love. Yeah, it's an interesting way that you uh, phrase that because it's actually phrased really interestingly in this report that I was just speaking on. Um, in the report, there is a statement uh, that sort of tries to make that connection to people who may not have been touched by this yet. And it says, we hope to awaken every American to this simple fact. If this scourge has not found you or your family yet without bold action by everyone, it soon will. We are hoping that this conversation that we had today will kind of spark some different ideas that people may have or just give insight into what's currently going on, why we're losing so many people, and what steps can be taken to prevent those losses because, again, steps need to be taken. Mm -hmm. um, and we give a pretty practical approach. I think it's not something that you have to feel is out of your control necessarily. I mean, um, there are definitely things that we can't do just because of qualifications, but I think there's a lot of stuff and practical ways to just um, treat people that have this problem that I think everybody can implement in their lives. Mm -hmm. so. I think this is a really beneficial conversation in ways that many of the other ones that we've had potentially haven't been because there's a good chance that if you're listening right now, somebody you know or even you may be dealing with this problem currently. Mm -hmm. um, there have been stats that I've read that say that one in three Americans have an opioid prescription. Wow. And the, the statistics don't really back up the idea of how many people would be considered addicted or have their lives negatively affected by these prescriptions because as our doctors today kind of explained, there are benefits to an opioid prescription with pain management and there are reasons that they are prescribed. Mm -hmm. But we have to understand that 
we can't let those prescriptions get out of hand. And it seems that many of them have. Yeah, I think I think it's important that you just said, like, there are benefits. Because I think some people might look at this crisis and say, okay, well, why don't doctors just stop prescribing the opioids? Mm-hmm. Like, that seems like the easiest solution. But that's really not even an option because, as you'll see in our discussion today, there are a significant amount of people who need these kinds of drugs and um, and they're not abusing them. They're not misusing them. And so um, I think that that's an important thing to consider that that's not really an option for most people who have chronic pain or um, I think uh, Dr. Bilski talks about cancer patients, you know, and mm-hmm. people who who really do need these kinds of prescriptions. Another benefit of this conversation that we had today was something as massive as this epidemic seems sort of out of our hands and something that we can't really control that comes back to um, the government to sort of step in and do something about it. But both of our doctors today sort of offer insight into not only how we can take personal steps to ensure that this doesn't happen to us, but to understand that the people who it may be happening to around us Many of them have similar circumstances or connected experiences that are leading towards this addiction. Um, Dr. Bilski talks about the idea of these sort of serving as like a surrogate family. So if somebody becomes addicted to something, they become addicted because the qualities of that drug sort of fill a void that they have been looking to fill for a long time. So again, if you're listening to this and you have somebody in your life or you personally are affected by some sort of an opioid addiction or any sort of addiction, I think that they give wonderful insight into why that addiction may have taken place and what cemented it and kind of offer solutions as to how you can combat that without all the crazy and uh, seemingly inapproachable steps that many people automatically jump to when they're thinking about handling addiction and especially opioid addiction. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point to remember too. One of the things that they suggest is being the most effective way to treat this is just with preventative kind of actions. And so, um, I mean, having the knowledge that these opioids are mainly being taken to fill some sort of a void, I think that that can give us a lot of insight into the mind of a person who might be addicted to these substances, that it's not just that oh, they're just a delinquent or something, you know, it's like they have some sort of a, um, a void that they want filled and, um, they're human and this is what they turn to. And so, um, yeah, I think kind of removing the stigma of that, that they are still people who just have needs the same as anybody else does. Um, and actually isolating them and kind of writing them off as a criminal, worsens that more than anything um so one quote that i uh went into this conversation sort of framing everything by was a quote by uh tom frieden who's the former director of the cdc and he labeled this epidemic as the only aspect of american health that is getting significantly worse this is absolutely something that seems to be spiraling further and further out of control and it seems like something that many people are kind of losing a grip on and we hope that through the conversation that we have today we can regain some form of balance and show people that there are solutions to these problems and that it's not hopeless and that there's help out there and that there are 
reasonable, approachable solutions to even the most discouraging parts of this problem. Um, so without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Bilski and Dr. Brady on the opioid epidemic. Hi, my name is Ed Bilski. I'm the provost and uh, chief academic officer here at Pacific Northwest University. I've been in medical education for the past 20 years, including uh, osteopathic medical schools. Uh, my degree is in pharmacology, and specifically I've conducted NIH-funded research in opiate pharmacology uh, dating back to uh, I was an undergraduate. And uh, you know, I've been at this interface between uh, the role of opioids in pain control and pain management and uh, the neurobiology of addiction, and have found it very fascinating as I've kind of extrapolated from the basic science research that I was conducting into the more clinical realms, and then also the societal uh, parts of this. So I've really you know, seen since the uh, late 1980s uh, some of the cyclical natures of these different drugs of abuse and how they're impacting society, and the you know, recent, uh, more recent surge in opioid prescribing, and then the opioid overdoses that we're confronted with today. Hello, I'm Al Brady. I'm a professor of medicine here at Pacific Northwestern University. I'm a medical oncologist by training, so my uh, experience with the opiates has been uh, in managing patients uh, with mostly with malignancy, although as my career evolved, I did... Uh, do both palliative care and pain clinics, uh, primarily focused on pharmacologic measures uh, to manage pain. And so my approach has been uh, uh, from the perspective of the value of these agents in a medical setting. I also participated, um, although I'm sometimes reluctant to admit it, in the initial guidelines, uh, writing of the initial guidelines, which uh, sort of pushed opiates into the mainstream for the management of chronic pain. Um, and there was, I think in retrospect, we can say a significant amount of naivete in that process. So starting this conversation, it seems, and all the numbers support that every year this is only getting worse and more people are dying every year and it's becoming a larger problem almost daily. Um, last year, based on the numbers that are coming out, and these numbers are really... Uh, still foggy and it's, it seems like it's really challenging to pin down exactly the the numbers that they're talking about here but overdose deaths in 2016 most likely exceeded 59,000 the largest annual jump ever recorded so this was the largest number in recorded history and all indications are that this year it's going to exceed that number and it seems that if that trend continues the following year will do the same um What's going on? Why? How are these numbers just skyrocketing like this? And what can be done to kind of not only level them off, but start fixing this problem rather than seeing it get worse? Sure. So I'd say, you know, first and foremost, these are enormously complex uh, issues. And it, it extends from the medical profession into societal issues as well and economic issues. Uh, you know, there's always been a subset of our population who has. Uh, chosen to indulge or take um, different uh, substances, drugs of abuse, 
and uh, and you know in the extremes they become meet the criteria for addiction or substance use disorders and it becomes a major problem both to them the individual and to the society and these things tend to be cyclical in nature too and uh, we have the substances that we you know legally uh, allow in our society alcohol and tobacco that um, comprise some of this uh, and then you have uh, drugs on the kind of the fringe with marijuana which is open to debate should be legalized or not and then you've got uh, some of the other drugs that are used uh, both in the medical profession and recreationally and uh, they'll surge I remember you know the the way I got into pharmacology was the drug ecstasy became a major drug on college campuses in the uh, 1980s and then you know that was replaced with bath salts and methamphetamine <laughs> heroin's been out there you know for many many decades and and sometimes you'll see surges in overdoses what i think's different about this more recent you know say decade has been uh, one we've introduced another subset of the population to drugs that were perceived to be relatively safe they are prescribed by doctors to treat pain and uh, because of that no big deal. I can, you know, take something from my grandmother's medicine cabinet or, you know, from a friend that was prescribed an opioid. And it introduced to me to a, a drug that's very reinforcing. It, it does uh, have some calming and uh, anti-anxiety properties. It's got some pure euphorogenic or pleasure-inducing properties. And um, it can develop quickly into a habitual use uh, issue. What has also concurrently happened as we've become more aware of, of the prescriptions being diverted and misused is that uh, alternatives to these drugs have become more readily accessible. Uh, first heroin and then some of these um, uh, adulterants such as the fentanyl type drugs. And now you're talking about incredibly potent, fast-acting agents that get into the brain almost instantaneously. Uh, are again incredibly addictive in their properties, but they're also uh, going to cause quick overdoses that um, you know are unpredictable based on the purity of the substance that the person has just purchased and uh, either injected, snorted, or uh, you know taken orally, and that has led to a lot of uh, deaths. And I think the other thing that is kind of hidden in all this too and it's very controversial, is are some people committing suicide via the use of these very powerful agents that they've just given up and checked out on life, and this is a convenient or easy way to kill themselves, you know, basically painlessly. So I know that's controversial, but, um, you know, th this whole mix of pharmacology and the desire to be taking these drugs or the stigma that prevents them from getting help once they've started to go down a a road of uh, you know, considering and then using these agents habitually is, is really an undercurrent that needs to be addressed along with addressing you know, other aspects of this crisis. Mm -hmm. Right, so there's an access issue and the inflow of particularly potent illegal agents um, that can uh, be deadly in a very sh short period of time. But there's the social side of this, which is I don't think we really understand very well, but there are some reports that suggest that um, there's a preponderance of people who are unemployed, who are less well-off economically, and cope with the 
have found this to be a way of coping with the stresses of their daily life. And uh, to deal with that, I think, requires a broad social effort uh, on the part of society rather than uh, looking at, certainly there's a medical component to this. There's no question of that. And we have to deal with the physicians who are unscrupulous in terms of their prescribing behaviors or potentially just ignorant. But uh, we have to deal with the societal issues also, which I think points to the fact that the problem is a bigger problem and it requires major, uh, a, a major action like declaring this some kind of national emergency. And more than just that, putting the funds behind that to accomplish what needs to be done. I agree. I think you know a federal uh, effort is warranted here, where we have to coordinate across the different states and different organizations to provide a multimodal approach to solving this problem, both on the prevention side and then on people that do have an active problem, the the treatment side. And it's interesting the point you made about you know, society and, and being gravitating towards these opioids. You know, the opioids have a well-distinguished role in pain, pain control, and uh, modulating pain signals up to the brain and how we react to them. Uh, they also have this uh, you know, major impact on the limbic system, which you know, kind of is the emotional well-being of an individual and, and the reinforcement uh, properties. But there's another part that's very interesting with the opioids and some of the brain structures that they're in, and that has to do with social uh, bonding from uh, basically infancy at the time of birth with the mother and the, and the infant bonding in a way that uh, reinforces that I'm going to take care of this uh, you know, infant that needs all my attention you know, with the, the breast milk and the endogenous opioids that are in there, um, all the way to basically bonding of social relationships. And what we've heard from people who are in recovery and, and asking them how they got into this situation, many of them talk about not being able to fit in. They felt different. They felt not part of something. And when they took the opioid, this kind of alleviated some of that stress of you know, uh, not having a purpose in your life or not feeling connected with society or with the family structure. So it's very interesting that, that they may be self-medicating. And then the question is, well, what has changed in society that has increased this loneliness, this isolation, and maybe reinforced mm why I'm taking and continuing to take these medications. Mm. It's really interesting to think about in those terms too, because it seems like one of the few things that people self-medicate with that actually serves as a medication. Um, all indications are that many of the addictions that people have and many of the problems that develop into worse problems start with a simple medication for a pain treatment that on the surface seems harmless. So if you have a, a leg injury, say you get a prescription and that prescription is meant to medicate you and to aid in recovery, um, and that seems to spiral out of control. Is there a connection between um, getting the medication and feeling the, the effects that it's intended to have and the combination of those things that you were just talking about with the, the societal differences that people feel and sort of the coping mechanism that the medication can provide? Yeah, so this is, again, another very highly controversial um, set of information data sets. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen uh, reviews in the medical literature uh, that, you know, when you're exposed to an opioid for a medical reason, the risk of you developing 
uh, an addictive type behavior, a substance use disorder, uh, ranges from basically like 1% up to 80%. And you, you ask the question, well, you know, with all this medical literature and all these great studies we're doing, <laughs> how can you have such a, a varied percentages? Um, what's happened subsequently, and in, in some of the reviews I've been reading that try to take any of the biases out of it um, and, and use these meta-analyses with the strongest pieces of information, strongest individual studies conglomerated together, that uh, you know, still the risk is relatively low. If, if you go into it with a legitimate medical need, pain uh, need, and the, and the physician does best practices and, and as an engaged patient that agrees to a treatment plan and understands the, you know, the risks and the benefits of any individual medication, that you know, the, the uh, risk of developing a new substance use disorder is around 25%. That has to be differentiated from substance misuse, which is a different situation. And that, that rate um, you know, tends to be a little bit higher, but a, a, a misuse of a medication could simply be, you prescribed me three pills a day for five days, and my pain wasn't too bad, and I actually took one less pill that day. I would technically be misusing the medication because I didn't take it exactly as prescribed. Or alternatively, my pain flared up, and in the back of my mind I said, if I take an extra pill, my pain will be under better control. Mm -hmm. But still, technically, I'm misusing it. So that, that's, um, I, I believe you know, that's around 25%. The, the, the substance misuse to the point of an addictive type of criteria is, is lower than that. I think it's around 10%. That's still unacceptable, and we need to come up with better treatment strategies that monitor patients that are good candidates for an opiate or not, and then to monitor them over the time of the medication being prescribed to make sure that it doesn't escalate into you know, aberrant or abnormal behaviors. Yeah. There, there are a couple key things. One is that a significant percent of people who have trouble with opiates get the medications or initially got the medications uh, from a friend, a relative, that wasn't prescribed for them. Um, and then I, I think you're absolutely right that the prescribing figures, authorities, the physicians or whoever, have to um, do the job right. And it's not an easy job when you do it right. You screen patients uh, according to certain criteria to be sure that their risk is low. And if their risk is higher, you may treat them in a different way or choose an alternative medication or be more aggressive about your monitoring of the patient, be more restrictive in your prescribing behaviors uh, a few days or a week at a time instead of a month at a time. Um, but you know, from the perspective of oncology, A, the drugs are critically important and incredibly valuable. And uh, your comment about a medical need uh, generally cr will, if you will, create a patient who's adherent to what you're trying to do. They recognize their need. They recognize the importance of the medication in normalizing their life uh, or at least eliminating suffering and they will be uh, compliant with your uh, directions and in my experience certainly in oncology where we prescribe large amounts of opiates it was <clears throat> easy for some patients 
to either evolve into a substance use disorder or to abuse in other ways, to sell the drug uh, for an income stream or something like that. Um, but as a general rule, if you're paying attention and you have the right systems in place in your practice environment, you can pick those people up pretty quickly. I mean, one of the key things about uh, substance abuse disorders is uncontrolled consumption. So their consumption is going to fall outside of the guidelines that you set out for them. And with proper monitoring, you pick that up and you can intervene appropriately, whether it's just to quit prescribing or is it to get them into some kind of program. And the, uh, you know, the whole concept of you know, the field of oncology and palliative care, really, I mean, that's a relatively young field. It was the 1980s that the World Health Organization came up with guidelines for managing cancer-related pain. We, weren't, we were doing a suboptimal job up until that point, and, and we, we felt with evidence that opioids had a role to play, and they, they started to be used more frequently. And, and that's a special population with, you know, typically this is end-of-life terminal and that the, the risks of substance use disorders or addiction really are, are marginal compared to the, the benefits of relieving you know, that pain at the end of life when it can be excruciating and giving that person you know, a better uh, end to their life along with you know, their family members feeling uh, better about the whole process. We, we then extrapolated some of that information right. saying that this is going to be applicable to all types of chronic <clears throat> pain. And uh, we got ourselves in some trouble because we had incomplete information, which we still do today. We have not done definitive, randomized, you know, properly controlled and powered studies to look at the long-term effectiveness of the opioid class for treating chronic pain. Now that's, you know, uh, unfortunately a failing of of the National Institutes of Health making this a priority and adequately funding it. Australia does have a current study that's in place called the POINT study that is trying to address this very important question. Uh, but we also have to understand that many drugs that we use commonly that are prescribed do not have adequate information in terms of safety and efficacy beyond, say, a month's use of time. It's incredibly expensive right. to fund those types of, of trials. So only a limited number of, of drugs have that kind of evidence to support their long-term use. Um, you know, these, these uh, opiates have been around for, you know, decades, if not hundreds to thousands of years, right. if you used, you know, raw opium as an example. And I think, you know, there is, there's clear evidence that they are effective in many cases, but they do carry risks. And you've, you've got to weigh that in each individual patient. And, and that can be a, a very daunting and challenging task, particularly when we pinch physicians in terms of the time with the patient and uh, the reimbursements of the sets of procedures and uh, guidelines that should be followed, but if they're not reimbursed, we can't expect the physician to actually enter into that contractual agreement with the patient and, and monitor that closely. Right. And, I, you know, in all honesty, it, in my office, a lot of the responsibility fell to the uh, nursing staff who were looking at refills and so on and so forth. And at looking at patient behavior. 
uh, and if the patient behavior seemed aberrant, then it was reported to me. Whether it was, you know, we're filling prescription, four-week prescriptions at two weeks, there's something wrong here. Either the prescription is not the right prescription for this patient or we're moving in the wrong direction in terms of uh, beginning to abuse the drug. It brings up an interesting idea, too, that I hadn't uh, factored into my notes here, but we had a conversation with uh, one of our former students yesterday who was talking about his approach to patients differs from a lot of other medical professionals' approaches in that time pinch. Um, He said that he doesn't have the demands from the hospital that he works at now to see as many patients as a lot of hospitals demand physicians to see, and that gives him the benefit of understanding not only what they came in for, but all of the factors that may have led to what they came in for. So if somebody comes in with back pain, he doesn't just talk about the physical stresses that may have caused it, but he talks about emotional stresses and he kind of gets into their life and all the things that they dealt with. Is there a connection between prescribing the opioids to patients and not having a connection with the patients due to those time pinches and the constraints and the forces that are on physicians that you were kind of referencing there? Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I, what I love about the uh, field of osteopathic medicine is that, you know, take that step back and look at many different aspects of, of the patient's life and the situation they're currently in, you know, the mind-body-spirit approach. Um, and you bring up you know, another very important point in this, too, and that has to do with, uh, you know, a lot of the finger-pointing that's gone around. We've identified areas that we're weak in, and in the medical profession uh, and, and colleges and universities, it's the education of the future prescribers that's very, very important. And, you know, the statistics show that on average, um, a medical student all in the four years of their medical education were only obtaining about, you know, 10 to 12 hours devoted to pain management and uh, the use of opioids and other drugs and other modalities, non-pharmacological, for the management of pain. And that's simply not enough uh, training as they enter into residency. Because it's a number one complaint. Number one complaint. I mean, there's estimates as high as close to a third of our population meet the criteria for chronic pain sometimes within a, a year. Um, this is something that's seen frequently by primary care physicians, uh, and then you, you've got the dental profession. You know, what's funny is the veterinarians uh, are getting a lot more training in pain management than physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurses, dentists, and, and that has to change. And, and that's something that I'm very proud at PNWU and in my previous institution, which was in the College of Osteopathic Medicine, that we were devoting more time in the curricula to tackle these common and very important medical issues. Yeah, and the, to go back to the time issue in the office though, that, that is a problem and maybe it will never change, but it's contributed to a, a number of issues that we have. The whole antibiotic issue is it's easier to write for an antibiotic than to sit down and explain to the patient what a viral illness is and how they just have to buck up and deal with the symptoms and, and take, take symptomatic meds. Uh, and, uh, of course, other psychoactive agents, too, get prescribed because it's easier, again. And resources are a problem. The mental health resources are an issue not only with the opioid epidemic, but in terms of dealing with the uh, other kinds of uh, uh, psychological issues uh, and mental health issues that we have in, in the society. And you see that spilling out in the fact that police are using 
significant force against people who are unbalanced. Uh, and that's not how you handle somebody who's schizophrenic or autistic uh, with a firearm. It's just not how you do it. Yeah, the, the incentives for uh, you know, physicians and reimbursements, you know, we, we need to fix that. Um, and I understand the, the role of um, you know, the, the patient and their satisfaction, which is important. But if that becomes one of the major metrics that determines you know, reimbursements, you can get yourself into trouble. I use the analogy with uh, medical students. As a professor, um, I get graded on teaching evaluations. And I have students that come to me, and they have a question. And the, the very simple and, and most straightforward thing is to just answer that one you know, question, and they leave with a tangible result, and they're happy. But they're unlikely to, even if I give a, you know, a short answer, retain that. They haven't owned it yet. They haven't struggled with that more difficult concept that's behind that question. So I, I do the unfavorable thing and, and turn it around and try to get at them what they already know about the situation or the or the the topic and have them struggle a little bit with me you know don't get them so that they get too frustrated but have them work it out and if they can come to the solution themselves with a little bit of coaching a little bit of facilitation they're one more likely to retain and remember it and and two then ultimately leave satisfied but you run the risk of having a you know the patient or the uh, med student that leaves dissatisfied because hey your job was to give me something when i came to you and you didn't give me that quick fix. You gave me something, a treatment plan, for example, that's going to involve maybe losing some weight and maybe you know, increasing my exercise regimen or stretching. And um, I'm not going to find the time to do that, and I'm going to be really mad at you because you could have just given me that one pill, pill that yeah. I take you know, X number of times a day, and that just dulls the pain. But it doesn't really treat the underlying symptomology that was contributing to that pain. Right. And we certainly see diagnoses delayed, too, by inappropriate treatment. I mean, perhaps one of the classic things is to assume someone has a benign gastric duodenal process prescribed antacids, and it turns out that if you bothered to scope them, you would have found a malignancy. But the medication relieves their symptoms and allows the disease, underlying disease to progress. And great example on the pain side was my wife uh, has had, you know, recurrent pain in the hips and back, and uh, you know it was now thirty something years into her, uh, you know, life, and uh, we'd started you know working at an osteopathic medical school, and uh, she went to you know the OMM clinic, and the first thing they had her do was walk up and back around the hallway, and then they did some uh, kind of measurements of you know the, the leg length, and they were the first to diagnose that she had two different uh, you know, lengths in her legs. And she had been compensating for many, many years uh, because of this unequal uh, you know, distribution. Uh, so then they, they took that step back and, and started to look at orthotic stretching exercises and uh, rebuilding and trying to retraining you know, something that had occurred over many, many years and it contributed to this pain. But it was an osteopathic physician that did a very simple set of tests you know, instead of ordering an MRI right. or just, you know, putting pills, you know, down her throat to uh, dull the pain. Yeah. It's an interesting way to look at the entire crisis, and it seems like a potential reasonable answer uh, going forward to sort of put a, a cap on 
the problem if you have that osteopathic approach where you're understanding the patient that's getting the prescription before you're giving out the prescription and understanding all the symptoms that go into it. And I think that that would certainly aid in making sure that while there are benefits to the medications, that those benefits are actually beneficial and not just sort of going out there in hopes that they become beneficial with the cause of them potentially being harmful instead. Um, but even if you do put a cap on this issue and stop the overprescribing or the misprescribing of medications, the issue stands that there are so many people who are already highly addicted to these medications that there's not really a quick fix, uh, in my eyes anyway, to that problem. What do you guys see as uh, potential solutions or potential benefits to coming up with some plans sort of like the ones that are laid out in this guideline here that hopefully could kind of curb all the problems that people are having already. Yeah, so you know, to the first point, uh, we have made some progress with public education, medical education. Uh, the, the number of prescriptions being written for opioids has peaked and is starting to decline. And we need to be careful that you know, we don't deprive people who do get benefit you know, of, of the opioid class you know, from receiving those, uh, and we've got to make sure that uh, people that will not benefit or are at risk for these substance use disorders um, you know, are managed very differently and very carefully uh, from the, the rest of the population. So we, we are making an impact there. What, what's happened, though, is that the, you know, the price of oxycodones went way up, and people started shifting to heroin, and the traditional barriers that prevented people from trying heroin you know, where do you go find it? You know, well, now it's everywhere. You know, it's very simple to get. It's cheap. And now it's being adulterated. And that, you know, again, that's led to this uh, uh, overdose danger with these uh, you know, very potent uh, you know, molecules. So still we want to always focus on if we can prevent someone from taking an opiate in the first place, continue those efforts. Early detection and intervention is also incredibly important. It's much easier to manage a, a person who is just starting to go down that road and bring them back up you know, to so-called you know, normalcy or at least you know, no, you know, a healthier lifestyle. But that still leaves a large segment of our population who are on the way, you know, a trajectory downward and hitting you know, close to rock bottom. And you know, from talking to a number of these uh, individuals, uh, we do not want to give up hope. You know, if they're helpless and, 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 and feel like they cannot ever get back to a situation where they're, they're healthy again, uh, that puts them in a very dangerous you know, position. I think that's you know, where suicide you know, comes into the picture. So getting them the right help, which typically will be multimodal in its approach, support groups, um, you know, a coordinated medical professional team, uh, that includes not just pharmacotherapy. There is pharmacotherapy for substance use disorders, but that has to be combined with uh, counseling and you know, behavioral cognitive type approach therapies, trying to get them, you know, remove barriers too. Uh, the other thing we've, we've talked about is the huge stigma associated with these diseases, both uh, substance use disorders and chronic pain. If we can eliminate some of that and do things like having police officers who are on the front lines of this be more concerned about getting the person help rather than incarcerating them into the criminal you know, justice system. 
Uh, and that, that has happened, right? The, the police chiefs in many communities have really changed the tenor of how they're approaching this because this, this is their sons and daughters, their neighbors that are being impacted by this. If we can, you know, turn the, the corner and um, making people aware of where these resources exist and, and get them access to it and then try to start to chip away at what are the fundamental reasons why they can <clears throat> continue to take their opioids. That will help, and that's going to take resources. It's going to take a lot of coordinated resources at the, at the very small family and community levels all the way up to the federal government across the states and across you know, really the world too because this is a global problem as well. Yeah, it's, um, another challenge that I've always seen with it is so many of the people who really spiral into the, the deep uh, aspects of addiction, especially with opioids, seem to completely disconnect themselves from most of other societal connections. So how do you make a connection with people like that who are already deep into this addiction and how do you kind of reach them to show them that not only is there help, but that they should seek that help? Well, I think one of the key first things is to recognize the problem. And again, the earlier you recognize it, the better off you are, uh, the better off the patient is. Um, I, I don't, I guess I don't really know how you, you know, I mean, the person's, you know, the old joke about how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, only one, but the light bulb's got to want to change, you know. And uh, uh, there has to be, I think, some recognition on the part of the uh, patient that, that they need help. The unfortunate thing is that there is there is money available, uh, either from insurance companies or from um, uh, Medicaid, and there are now uh, because of the limitations of resources, there are a lot of unscrupulous people out there taking in um, uh, people who want to be helped and not helping them at all, and in fact, in some cases, making their uh, problem worse. Yeah, I think, you know, when we confront a really big problem in society, we can become overwhelmed by it, and it almost freezes us into inaction rather than action. And, you know, we, I'm coming from Maine, I just recently moved to Yakima. In Maine, we also had a very large uh, opioid problem, and uh, we didn't want to wait. And there was, it was individuals that got together. We formed a mayor's task force that brought together many different parts of the equation. Uh, the university had a, a very important role to play in this, and uh, the mayor's office, housing, um, some of the other social services, the medical professional fields uh, across the disciplines, and, and then things like libraries and public spaces and uh, the Rotary. So the Rotary, you know, uh, was very concerned about this from a business perspective. We were trying to revitalize the downtown of uh, Bitterford, Maine, and uh, there was a subset of the population that would, you know, basically be scared to go into that section of the downtown. So the business owners were losing business. But they also had a big problem with employing people. They had jobs and that would pay reasonably well, uh, but they couldn't find people that wanted to do those jobs or could do them because of problems with their substance use disorder, whether it was timeliness or you know, just ability to function uh, in a safe manner. So all of these groups were concerned, and we started talking to each other. 
and we started to realize that there was a lot more resources than anybody had thought was available. Now, once we convinced ourselves that there was all these resources and that we could maybe better utilize them, the bigger challenge now was getting the word out to the people who were facing these daunting challenges of, hey, I've, I've, I've got a full-blown addiction here. Where do I get help? How do you reach that, that person? So we, we took that approach again on the prevention side. We went right into the middle schools and high schools. Even middle schools, there's enormous awareness of these drugs, and they're affecting these, the families of these kids, and they're starting to get introduced to these substances. So we, we didn't think we could start too young. We, we could have responsible conversations. We involved young people in recovery. It was a, it was a group movement uh, that's national now, and uh, people who have hit rock bottom and have come back and are doing you know, much, much better than, than, than they were you know, years ago. But they were close enough in age to relate to adolescence, which is a very difficult time period to you know, go through. It's got its own challenges, and then it's exacerbated by substance misuse. It started to spread like wildfire. Um, we were using um, social media. We were using uh, things such as narrative medicine and videos. Uh, the, there's one group in particular that had a summer film institute, and the uh, kids that were participating in this, these were teenagers, they got to pick the topic each year. And one year they picked the opioid crisis. They would make a screenplay. They would direct and act out the entire production uh, all the way through post-processing and they would have a final product. Once they had the final product they went into all the different high schools and started showing this film and then at the end of the film having a discussion with the mm -hmm. participants. We weren't treating it as just say no type of an approach. We were starting to treat them as young adults that were becoming full-blown independent adults, mature adults that had decisions to make. It was, it was eye-opening to see the levels of engagement as you started to treat them as adults. They had questions on their minds. They were concerned about these things, whether it was themselves or a friend that was being impacted. It empowered them, and they had different roles to play. So the jock athlete had a role to play, along with the, the more reserved, quiet kid that, that uh, likes to make films or you know, likes to read more. And we started to be come back to becoming a community. You talk about that detachment. The, the opioids are almost a surrogate for a father or mother or a, a close social network you know, or a community. Mm. And so there's a fascinating book, I don't know if, if anybody's read that, uh, called Dreamland. Dreamland starts out by talking about a small community in Ohio. And back in the 40s, 50s, post-World War II, they had a swimming pool. It was a community swimming pool that brought all different ages and all different walks of life together. It was a centerpiece of a strong community, and there was jobs. Getting back to your, your, your point on, you know, what's important for a person, a human being, to have a job that provides for the family, to be able to provide food and shelter, and to provide some recreational opportunities in a, in a structure of a family unit and a community unit that's healthy. But then all of a sudden things got started to chip away at at that healthy community. The jobs started to be replaced by, you know, more um, automated machines or outsourcing to other countries that had lower wages. They started to see, you know, changes. The 60s were a big cultural revolution for us, a lot of different changes. And we started to isolate 
you know, subsets of our, our communities. And we started to not fund the types of programs that would give safety nets for individuals, particularly as they go through adolescence into adulthood. If we can get them through that critical window, we tend to have much better outcomes. But if they get trapped in it with a substance use disorder, it can be really challenging to get them back to being healthy. Then all of a sudden we had the pill epidemics and the, the diversion of these drugs. And, and some physicians who were willing to just prescribe if you gave them 50 bucks. That's not being a physician. That's being a criminal. But that happened. And, and, and the drug companies were not, you know, they were too complacent. They, you know, were looking at after their bottom line, some of them. Some of them were not responsible pharmaceutical companies. And they downplayed, you know, what was always a Schedule II substance, oxycodone, oxycontin, those are always Schedule II substances. By definition, high abuse, highest abuse potential with an accepted medical use. So, you know, we're, we're seeing some change at the grassroots level. We want to see this better coordinated at the federal level, you know, and that's going to take some additional funding. But communities can bring themselves back, you know, to health. It's going to be a big effort, but we're seeing isolated examples of that, use those best practices, build on that. And that's you know, what we're trying to do here in Yakima, too. Yeah. When you think about it, uh, your experience in Maine is an absolutely a mirror of how you talked about dealing with the student who asked the question. You know, rather than saying, just say no, simple, which we all know, particularly with adolescents, is not going to work, you engage them and got them to help in, in figuring out what the solution was and in being part of the solution. Yeah, it was, it was very, um, very fulfilling for me personally to see a university and a college um, that you know, had some stake in the game uh, but was not directly you know, involved with uh, the youth, reaching out to the school systems and you know, starting to listen to what these uh, you know, young adults were saying to us um, and then involving uh, these people, that uh, young people in recovery, that had the street credibility, mm-hmm. been there, done that, and you know, through luck, survived, but also realized that this is not where I want to spend the rest of my life. Where do I go for help? And, we, and once you hear several of those examples and, and getting them re-engaged, now they have a purpose in their life. We have some of these videos on, on the website that I can share you know, with, with the group, uh, compelling stories, uh, but they had to feel comfortable enough to start to tell those stories and that's, again, why we need to bring the stigma down you know, so that that's a barrier. If we can bring the stigma down and not be so judgmental and, and just agree upon, hey, this is not where we want to be. What can we do to make it better? What can we do to prevent, to get early treatment? And you know, for those who are almost at rock bottom, how can we still help you? There is hope. Thanks again for tuning into The Scientific Method. If you haven't had a chance to check out some of our past episodes, I highly encourage you to do that as soon as possible. We've already had some great conversations with members of the PNWU community, including Dr. Brandon Isaacs, Dr. Melissa Lemp, Dr. Robert Sorrells, and the two doctors you heard here today, Dr. Albert Brady and Dr. Edward Bilski. Visit iTunes or our blog page and subscribe now to listen to all of those great episodes and to be the first to hear all of the great episodes and conversations we've yet to release.